Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. The struggle is real for Southwest. The leap starts right now. Six days in, Southwest has canceled more than 15,000 flights. Tomorrow may not be better. Southwest stock is taking a hit. Then, new details emerging about the final days of the Trump administration. A witness told the January 6th committee Donald Trump's chief of staff regularly burned documents. So that gives a whole new meaning to fireside chats. Plus, why celebrities and social media are driving a shortage of a life-saving diabetes drug. Welcome to Lead. I'm Phil Mattingly in for Jake Tapper. Relief is still a few days away for Southwest Airlines passengers. The airline's canceled more than 2,500 flights today. More than 2,000 others already canceled tomorrow, putting the total number of scrapped Southwest flights north of 15,000 since bad weather hit last week. Airports are filled with long lines of Southwest passengers trying to rebook as piles of lost luggage continue to grow. Now, while other airlines recovered from the winter storm fairly quickly, Southwest very obviously has not. Yesterday, Southwest accounted for 84% of cancellations among all airlines. Today, 91% of cancellations. And tomorrow, a whopping 99%. We start with CNN's Gabe Cohen, who reports other airlines are beginning to cap fares in the hopes of helping stranded Southwest passengers. Tens of thousands of travelers still weathering Southwest meltdown without a clear end in sight. I'm hungry. I'm exhausted. I just want to go home. The airline canceling more than 2,500 flights Wednesday, 62% of its schedule, according to FlightAware, with a similar wave of cancellations already shaping up for Thursday. It's been disastrous. Erno and her kids are in line in Baltimore desperately trying to find their bags. They slept here last week when their flight to visit family got canceled. They eventually got there. The bags didn't, and they just got home. Standing back in this line is giving me anxiety again because we literally slept on the floor. I didn't have much but what's on my bag. Southwest says this chaos began with winter weather, but the airline's antiquated systems struggled to track their planes and crews and connect them, resulting in this near week's worth of canceled flights and missing luggage as they reposition those crews. We reached a decision point to significantly reduce our flying to catch up. And the airline's own employees want answers. It has been absolutely horrific, the most despicable working conditions that you can imagine. This is going to continue until there is a sweeping change to the way Southwest operates. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg vowing to hold the airline accountable, especially after staffing issues caused problems last summer. They provided uh, commitments in writing, including Southwest, uh, that they would uh, go above the the previous level of what you do to take care of customers with things like uh, covering the cost if, if you get stuck and you need a hotel or a meal in addition to rebooking you. Still, thousands of passengers are stranded and struggling. Oh, I hate Southwest. I hate them. But amid the chaos, we've seen some remarkable gestures. I met 72-year-old Pam Shelby Tuesday, stranded and sleeping at Baltimore's airport for days. I'm scared I'm not going to get out of here. And I'm by myself. 
a good Samaritan saw her story on TV and bought her a ticket home to Alabama on another airline, leaving Wednesday night. Just want to go take a shower and sleep and get this out of my mind. And that person who bought you the ticket, what did that mean to you? She was a godsend. She was my angel. She took me to get my meds, made sure I was on them, and I'll never forget her. And behind me, Phil, you can see just some of the thousands of travelers still searching for their luggage. Many of them are still stranded, some stuck in hotels, and a lot of them are footing the bill right now for things like uh, transportation, lodging, and food. Even though Southwest says they can submit those receipts for reimbursement, and they'll be reviewed on a case-by-case basis. Phil? I've spent like the last day thinking about Pam Shelby at least once an hour from your piece yesterday. That is at least one story of great news. Dave Cohen, thanks so much. Staying on Southwest Airlines travel nightmare, the company itself is expected to suffer a financial setback following this meltdown. CNN business correspondent Rahel Solomon is following this. And Rahel, obviously we focus on the personal stories here, but the business impact has to be substantial. What, what, what sense are you getting about what that may look like in the weeks and months ahead? Right, Phil, all sorts of financial implications for this, right, both for investors and for Southwest Airlines, the company itself. So let's start with investor shares closing again down about 5% today. That's on top of the 6% loss we saw yesterday. So investors, you see it there. Executives also don't like to see their stock dropping day after day. Now let's talk about the cost for Southwest Airlines. You have won the cost to reimburse all of these flyers who decide they don't want to rebook. They just want their money back. So that will be a pretty significant expense for Southwest. Phil, you think about all of the employees who have had to work in terms of uh, the reservation desk, in terms of manning the phones to try to provide some relief and customer service. That will likely be some OT expense, according to what I'm told. And then you also think about the system that sort of uh, appears to be at play here, the scheduling system that some of the unions have said was out of date. The update to that that the CEO said last night, they're going to have to double down in terms of accelerating the plan to upgrade that. I'm told, Phil, that those upgrades could cost at least double digits, about $100 million to upgrade that. So all sorts of financial implications here. Uh, One aviation industry consultant put it to me this way. You're looking at roughly ballpark a million customers. If an average ticket is $250 to $300, well, that suggests the upper limit in terms of absolute value is about $250 to $300 million. The question is how they defray that in terms of how they, how many passengers can they convince to not cash out, but just hold on to their ticket rebook, likely with some generous perks. Yeah, and as they try and kind of unlock this very clear bottleneck, we're looking at the near term. When you look into the future, what does all this mean for Southwest as a company, as a brand, as a public or as a corporate entity at this point? Right, because it's not just the expense, Phil, but it is the uh, black eye that this causes, right? The reputational and brand damage that this causes. Look, Southwest Airlines is an airline that is essentially synonymous with customer service. And so when I've talked to industry experts about what type of damage might this do for customers, you know, I'm told, look, People sometimes have short-term memory, so we'll see how significant it will ultimately be. But it is no doubt a black eye for a company that prides itself on customer service. Rahel Solomon, great reporting as always. Thanks so much. Now, another growing travel issue tops our world lead. Federal health officials have just announced the U.S. will require negative COVID tests for travelers coming from China. This is China is about to open its borders as it drastically reverses parts of its zero-COVID policy. 
That's led to an explosion of COVID cases in China and what U.S. officials consider, quote, lack of transparent data. Let's bring in CNN's Arlette Sines, who's in St. Croix, where President Biden and his family are vacationing, and Selena Wang, who's in Beijing. Arlette, I want to start with you. Can you explain these new rules and when exactly they'll take effect? Yeah, Phil. Well, the federal health officials today announced that those individuals traveling from China will now have to show a negative test before their departure. This is set to take place starting at 12.01 a.m. on January 5th. Now, these tests must be taken no more than two days before departure uh, from China. It also would require that they would be PCR tests or antigen self-tests that are administered through either a telehealth service uh, and that are approved by the federal, uh, uh, the FDA here in the United States. Additionally, those people who had tested positive for COVID more than 10 days before their departure, they would be able to show proof of recovery in lieu of that negative test. Now, this is not just going to be for those who are coming directly from China. It will also apply to those who might be traveling through third countries, so including airports in Seoul, Vancouver, and Toronto. And while so much of this is based on concerns over the rise of COVID-19 cases, in China after the elimination of its zero COVID policy, federal health officials says that a big portion of this has to do with what they consider a lack of transparent data coming from China. Officials saying that that uh, includes data relating to cases, hospitalizations and deaths, but most importantly, a lack of information when it comes to genomic sequencing. That helps determine new variants uh, that could potentially be emerging. So officials are hoping here that this will help uh, reduce not just the spread of the coronavirus, but also uh, eliminate any possible new variants from coming to the country as they are seeking more information. There will also be an expansion of this traveler-based genomic uh, sequencing uh, program that's expanding to seven airports. They are hoping that that will help identify any possible new variants at this moment as well. Now, another important note, this goes into into effect on January 5th. Officials saying that they are trying to give the airlines more time to uh, implement those operations to have this plan in place. And Selena, how is China responding to this? And is there any sense right now on the ground that the COVID outbreak there is getting any better or easing at all? So, Phil, yesterday before we got this official announcement from the U.S. in response to potential travel restrictions from the states, China essentially defended its COVID policy, accused some Western media for hyping up its policy change and urged countries to work together. So the country's foreign ministry spokesperson said, quote, China has always believed that the measures taken by countries to prevent the epidemic should be scientific and moderate and should not affect normal people to people exchanges. Now, the irony here, Phil, is that since the very start of the pandemic, China has had some of the strictest border controls in the world. But now that the country is finally opening up and cases are surging, well, other places are getting nervous. China has also stopped reporting daily COVID cases on a national level. It's severely narrowed its definition of COVID deaths, only reporting a handful of COVID deaths for the entire month. Now, Beijing says, look, everything is under control, but We know that hospitals are overflowing with elderly patients and crematoriums across the country are overwhelmed. Fever and cold medicine are scarce. So far, Japan, India, Taiwan and Italy's Lombardia region have put some COVID testing requirements in place. In fact, Taiwan and Japan said if the traveler from China tests positive, 
for COVID upon arrival, they'll have to quarantine for several days. Now, as Arlette said, the big concern from some of these countries is a lack of data from China that could help detect new variants. However, GISA, the global consortium that collects a database of COVID sequences, said China has significantly increased the data that it's submitting. And it says that all the sequences shared by China suggest the virus is fueling the outbreak here closely resemble the variant circulating in the rest of the world since July. But look, it's not as if China has totally thrown open its own borders. China's borders still remain largely close to foreigners, apart from a limited number of business or family visits. Phil. Yeah, there are layers to this uh, and a lot of concerns as well. Arlette Sines clearly on hardship duty in St. Croix and Selena Wang in Beijing. Thanks to you both. (laughs) From actually burning documents to discussions about conspiracy theories. We're learning one witness's description about the wild final days in the Trump White House. We're back with our national lead, the crisis at the border. It comes after the Supreme Court issued an order leaving Title 42 in place. That has left thousands of migrants in limbo, crowds sleeping on the streets of Texas, thousands more in Mexico waiting to cross into the U.S., In El Paso, Customs and Border Protection officials are preparing for the surge to continue, putting up large tents to help with migrant processing. CNN's Leila Santiago is in El Paso, where many more are concerned the court's decision could trigger even more illegal crossings. In Dallas. So what she wants now is she's hoping she can get to Dallas, uh, to where she knows someone, to be able to, as she has repeated, find a better future for her children and work. Marbelis Montesinos and her one-year-old son just finished a four-months-long journey from Venezuela through nine different countries just to be here in the United States of America. Her question is to the people of the United States, to the government of the United States, why don't they want her here? That sentiment echoed by many mothers here with their futures in doubt after the Supreme Court ordered Tuesday to keep in place the Trump-era Title 42 policy while legal challenges play out in court over the next few months. Their policy allows the U.S. government to expel migrants legally seeking asylum before they've had a proper hearing. It breaks me because there's no directive. And what we're trying to provide uh, with the minimal resources that we have is a direction. So they can go from point A to point B. Over the past few months, tens of thousands of migrants have been surging to the southern border, creating a humanitarian crisis. It's left border towns like El Paso overwhelmed and unable to keep up with the challenges of providing care, food and shelter for those in need. We've had as many as 2,500 crossings a day, and we'll, and that's will continue. And this is while Title 42 is still in place. El Paso is preparing for an even larger surge should Title II be rescinded, transforming two vacant schools into temporary housing. This is just a Band-Aid on a broken immigration system. The system has to be fixed because we can't continue to go this way. U.S. Customs and Border Protection says it's setting up a new processing facility in El Paso to increase capacity. It's one of 10 new temporary processing facilities being added on the U.S.-Mexico border. For now, local organizers in El Paso are asking people to just try to see the humanity in everyone. They're here. Some of them are here. What are we going to do? It's time to step up. It's time to say, you know what? They're here, regardless if I'm a red shirt, blue shirt, whatever the case may be. Let's help out these people. 
And tonight, Phil, you can see behind me on both sides, these sidewalks continue to be lined by um, families, quite frankly, hoping that there will be enough space tonight to sleep in this shelter. And, you know, as the country braces for a potential surge in more migrants coming, we are learning of another potential surge that's concerning the Department of Homeland Security. CNN has obtained a memo that was circulated just days ago warning of potential violent extremist attacks targeting migrants and uh, potentially critical infrastructure should this Trump-era policy end. Phil? Humanity. Not a terrible idea. Leia Santiago, great reporting. Thanks so much. Turning to our politics lead, shocking new claims revealed in transcripts released by the January 6th committee, including the chief of staff, Mark Meadows, burned documents in the White House following meetings with former President Donald Trump, which could be a violation of the Presidential Records Act. If not, it's very shady. Nonetheless, CNN Sarah Murray is with us now. Sarah, walk us through this. Uh, it was a crazy time. I think that is well established at this point. But where does this exact allegation come from? It was a crazy time, but this comes from Cassidy Hutchinson, who is, of course, a top aide to Mark Meadows. A little bit of it came out in some public reporting. So, frankly, it was kind of surprising that it wasn't a bigger focus of the committee in their public hearings. But in her transcript, she talks about about a dozen instances where she remembers this happening. She says, throughout the day, he would put more logs on the fireplace to keep Keep it burning throughout the day. And I recall roughly a dozen times where he would throw a few more pieces of paper in with it when he would put more logs on the fireplace. Now, she does say she doesn't know what these papers were. She doesn't know if they were original documents. She doesn't know if they were copies. So she can't really, you know, explain to the committee what the contents were. But as you, sh- you said, it's a, an interesting move for the White House chief of staff. Yeah, there are other ways to keep a fire going. Hey, look, White Houses have burn bags. They burn documents. Do. That's just usually not the way they do it. One of the interesting things about Cassie Hutchinson's testimony was that the idea, which was always on the periphery in terms of QAnon, the insane QAnon conspiracy theory, it actually appears like it was fairly regularly discussed inside the White House. Yeah, I mean, I think in some ways it shouldn't be surprising because the former president, you know, indulged in a lot of conspiracies. But Cassie Hutchinson, again, in her transcript, talks about a number of instances where QAnon conspiracies come up in her time at the White House. One of these is a conversation she's having with Peter Navarro, who was in the administration then. She says, at one point I said sarcastically, uh, oh, is this from your QAnon friends, Peter? Because Peter would talk to me frequently about his QAnon friends. He said, have you looked into it yet, Cass? I think they point out a lot of good ideas. You really need to read this. Make sure the chief sees it. So you have people within the administration trying to elevate these conspiracies up to the White House chief of staff, potentially up to the president. It's great that whenever you think we're at peak crazy, it turns out you can actually go higher. There's a lot going on There's in the White House. There's a lot going on. Kind of scary in hindsight. Sarah Murray, thanks so much. All right, coming up, uh, incoming Republican Congressman George Santos may want to lay low for a little bit after breaking his silence about those resume lies. And our politics lead, in his first television interview since he admitted to repeatedly lying about his background and resume, Republican Congressman-elect George Santos of New York was grilled about many of the false claims he now acknowledges making on the campaign trail, including his claims of having Jewish heritage. And as CNN's Eva McKen reports, some prominent Republicans are starting to turn against the congressman-elect. These are blatant lies. My question is, do you have no shame? Incoming Republican Congressman George Santos facing his most contentious interview yet as he tries to explain lies he told about his life while campaigning for Congress. Look, I, and I, I agree with what you're saying. And as I stated and I continue... 
We can debate my my resume and how I worked with firms such as Goldman. Is it's it very, debatable no, or it's is very it just debatable. false? I, no, no, it's not false at all. It's it's debatable. Santos trying to minimize his lies as mere embellishments in an interview with Fox News. His answers getting strong pushback from host Tulsi Gabbard. Uh, it's hard to imagine how they could possibly trust your explanations when you're not really even willing to admit the depth of your deception to them. Santos insisting, despite the controversy, that he intends to serve in Congress. Now it's going to be up, uh, incumbent upon me to deliver on those results. And I look forward to servicing, you're, you're servicing exactly and, right. and serving my, pe- my district. House GOP leader Kevin McCarthy remaining silent on the matter, even as two fellow incoming GOP House members from New York issued statements criticizing Santos' lack of transparency. One of those lawmakers to be Congressman-elect Nick LaLota, calling for an ethics investigation and potential law enforcement involvement if necessary. Santos also under scrutiny for how he made his money and how he was able to loan his campaign more than $700,000. Santos telling news outlet Semaphore he earned his money in the capital introduction business and did deal building and specialty consulting for high net worth individuals. The Democrat who lost to Santos just last month calling on him to resign and to face him in a rematch. Assuming his name is George Santos, I think, in fact, he should resign his position based on the lies he's told. And I said, if he's so confident that he's got the he's got the trust of the voter, I'd face him in a rematch. And CNN can now confirm report Santos was charged with embezzlement in a Brazilian court, according to case records from the Rio de Janeiro Court of Justice. This dates back to a 2008 charge of embezzlement. Court records from 2013 state that the charge was archived after the court was unable to locate Santos. What's it like trying to keep up with this story, you McKen? Uh, no rest for the weary, <laughs> I think is fair to say. So many um, twists and turns. So many. Abby, as someone who clearly had uh, Tulsi Gabbard on your bingo card, yeah. is the person who is really going to press George Santos. I guess one of the questions I had, I feel like one of the most interesting developments of the week was two of his fellow congressmen-elect from New York starting to kind of creep out and say, this doesn't look super great. We haven't seen a lot of Republicans do that. What do you think the durability is for the congressman-elect at this moment in time going into the new Congress? I'm willing to put some money that he'll probably be around at least until after next Tuesday when Kevin McCarthy needs as many of those votes as possible. But after that, I don't really know. I mean, I think that if you're a member of Congress at this particular moment, you have to ask yourself, do I really want to serve in Congress with someone who literally is a manufactured version of a person? Like, they don't even know who he is uh, because so much of his background has been manufactured. And, uh, and I think long-term, Republicans would be wise to question whether there are many, many, many more shoes to drop here. Um, I mean, we, we're, we've scratched the surface. Some of the biographical stuff is uh, interesting and strange. But there are some other layers to this, like the money stuff, yeah. that I think is deeply concerning to a lot of members. And, um, and it could be very problematic for Republicans if they wrap their arms around this guy. Doug, I want to ask you about that. I mean, you're a veteran campaign hand. Uh, this is not an oppo-related question. I understand all the dynamics kind of going into this, that both sides had a lot of information uh, tied to this. But it's the money part in terms of how that goes with FEC stuff, in terms of where it all actually came from. When you look at it from a campaign perspective and what you've seen or what we've learned publicly about the money and what was transferred in, where it came from, what he's disclosed, what stands out to you? Do you see clear red flags? 
I mean, it's his PFD. Yeah. And, um, you know, he filled it out and he didn't list any clients. He supposedly earned $750,000. That's what he gave to his campaign. He raised hundred. He, he earned hundreds of thousands of dollars. You have to list your clients. He didn't do that. And so that's a huge red flag. Um, and I agree with Abby. I, I just think like, I think he's probably going to be sworn in. He's going to have a little more leverage then. But at the end of the day, he has to, he has to do the right thing here and step down. I don't think he will because he's a Trump acolyte. And in the rule book in Trump world is you stay on until you're, you're literally kicked out. But I think the biggest red flag is that PFD. There are a number of other things in his background that are just that are, um, you know, extraordinarily concerning. Um, if you I mean, even the thing about the charity, the pet charity, obviously the Holocaust accusations, this thing about um, the Pulse nightclub, um, just, you know, the guy's a total fraud and the people in his district deserve a lot better than this. Can I ask you, you know, one of the fascinating like, if you watch kind of the progression of stories like this. The thing that usually tips things over the edge is when other members start looking around and saying, this could actually blow back onto me. He's a congressman-elect in the Republican conference from New York, which was the state almost single-handedly responsible for giving Republicans the majority in a bunch of seats that in 2024 are going to be very, very much battleground seats. How does this play out as you kind of look at the map and your understanding of, of kind of the dynamics up there? Uh, do you feel like this could turn into to a tipping point for a lot of those new members uh, from New York? Well, I think that what you just described is exactly why it is some of those new members from New York who are going to be less electorally stable than someone who's a known quantity. And when their name is on the ballot, people know them and will be voting more on that. For those newer names who are going to want to cement their political careers, this is probably a bit more of a risk for them than someone from across the country, someone from another state, someone from further away. I doubt this is a story that we will be talking about two years from now as we head into the 2024 election, with the exception of in the area immediately around that district. This may well be a story that comes up. So I can understand why some members are more reluctant to talk about it, while others much more eager to distance themselves. Yeah, and in that area, there are two other Republican, new Republican members uh, from that part of New York. Eva, somebody who's been following the story very closely, you know, we're all talking, it just feels like more is going to come out. Do you get the sense when, when you talk to your sources, when you talk to people around this, that there is kind of a waiting for the next shoe to drop to some degree? Absolutely. I spoke to a House Republican today who, not coming forward publicly, as you know, none of them really are, uh, but he told me that they are all in disbelief, that they're still processing this, that you're not going to see anyone give sort of this full-throated defense of Santos beyond uh, Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, and that they are really concerned about the money. And so I think that they are not going to be commenting on this until they have no other choice. Of course, they return to Washington uh, next week and are going to be dealing with a very aggressive Hill press corps. Um, and so it's going to be a little bit harder to be uh, as evasive. But as of right now, they really don't want to say anything because uh, there are so many unknowns right now. Yeah, it's tough to go out on a limb on this. Abby, to, to shift gears a little bit, you covered the Trump White House. Um, I'm sure that was a super enjoyable experience every single day. The, the burning of the documents by Mark Meadows, honestly, like I saw it, and I was kind of like, eh, well, yeah, that kind of sounds like something they would do. However, like when you take a step back, it's fairly bonkers, depending on what those documents actually were. Does, does this mean anything longer term or is this just yet another window into an insane period of time? Man, I mean, and maybe a little bit of both. I mean, it's definitely a window into an insane period of time. And the way that Cassidy Hutchinson described it, which is like he's throwing logs on the fire to keep it hot all day long so he can toss pieces of paper onto the fire is really wild, but it, it it's part of a pattern. 
um, uh, this administration, when I was covering them and in all the things that we've learned since then, flouting the well-known rules about document uh, preservation, but also trying to kind of create a climate of secrecy around certain things that the former president was doing, meetings that he was having, uh, trying to keep those from ever reaching the light of day, even as people within the White House knew that what was going on was crazy. And I think you could include Mark Meadows as as one of those people. People around Trump would often um, see him talking to folks and and reading things that they, that were crazy, and they tried to keep a lid on it. Uh, but eventually, this stuff comes out, and that's what we are finding out right now. And I think there are some consequences on this, legal ones, really. Um, as, there's a special counsel investigation. They're going to be looking at this uh, very closely and looking at what it says about whether or not the people who were doing this knew that what they were doing was wrong. What were they trying to hide? I think those are the questions that are still out there. Doug, to shift gears a little bit more, you know, the, the House Ways and Means Committee is expected to read the president's taxes, uh, former president's taxes into the congressional record on Friday, I believe. You were a former senior committee staffer, House Budget Committee. I was a little cub running around Capitol Hill hallways. You were a big-time staffer. <laughs> One of the, there was an interesting uh, kind of graph in a Wall Street Journal editorial where they said, quote, Democrats have spent years justifying any action to get Mr. Trump and releasing his tax returns is another wrecking ball to standards and norms. Democrats could come to regret it and sooner than they think. Look, Wall Street Journal Ed Board is a conservative Ed Board, but they've been no friends of the, the former president to some degree. What do you think about that? The idea that, all right, Democrats are about to be in the minority right now. This could come back on them to some degree. I wouldn't worry about it too much. Really? <laughs> no. I, I, think, I think they are doing this for, this goes back to the fact that he should have been audited as president, right? And he wasn't, except I think there was one year where he was audited as president. There were a couple years where they didn't audit him. Why didn't they audit him? And so I think the reasons that Democrats made to get these tax returns and the reasons why they're posting it are based in terms of the fact that this audit never happened. So it's not just that, hey, we want to get them and we want to post them. You know, I think there's there's legitimacy around this and it's the right thing to do. And so, look, Trump has had Trump has had years and years to do what every other uh president and nominee of their party has done for many years, and that's to turn over his tax returns. He never did it. And so um, and now Democrats are doing it because, you know, look, quite frankly, he was never audited. And so put him out there. They're they're saying that, you know, this is about a public service. This is about accountability. Um, Of course, Republicans will say they are weaponizing this and just wait until we have the gavel. But also, I think this is about highlighting a two-tier tax system in this country, right? We have undocumented immigrants in this country who are, are demonized, and they pay more taxes than Trump does, some of them, right? And so I think that that is also the, the effort behind this. Democrats uh, highlighting an issue in a really big way with a really big figure that they have been trying to, I think, amplify for a long time. I will, can, just to add, yeah. I mean... I think if Republicans released Democratic candidates' tax returns, that would be nothing new because candidates typically release their tax returns. Yeah. Trump is actually the only one who hasn't done it in recent history, and that's why this is even happening to begin with. Just in the five seconds we have left, which is a ton of time, <laughs> um, do you think that this matters broadly? Uh, I, I think the only thing this could do is actually rally a fractured Republican Party back around Donald Trump. Right now, Donald Trump is wounded. Republicans have said, I want to get past this guy. This is the sort of thing, if the Wall Street Journal editorial board, again, they've tried to distance themselves from him, they're coming around and saying, look, it's the Democrats versus people like you, and Donald Trump is an example of that. So I think if there's any political effect at all, it's to rally Republicans back around Donald Trump again. And that's good things. a good thing for Democrats. <laughs> so many layers here, guys. <laughs> Thanks so much. 
All right, this just in. Democratic Congressman Jamie Raskin of Maryland announcing he's been diagnosed with lymphoma. In a written statement, he calls it, quote, a serious but curable form of cancer. He goes on to say, the prognosis, prognosis for most people in my situation is excellent after four months of treatment. Raskin served as the lead impeachment manager for the second Trump impeachment trial and was recently elected as the top Democrat on the House Oversight Committee for the next Congress. Raskin says he expects he will be able to continue to work during his treatment. Our thoughts with Jamie Raskin. Now, as the death toll rises from the blizzard in Buffalo, we're learning how some people save the lives of complete strangers. Thank y'all so much. I'm so happy y'all responded so fast. I'm right here. You okay? I love you too, sweetie. In our national lead, the death toll from the storm in western New York now stands at 35 at least 34 of those deaths in Erie County in the city of Buffalo. As residents and cleanup crews dig out from that Christmas weekend blizzard, we're hearing stories of both heartbreak and heartwarming compassion. CNN's Miguel Marquez is in Buffalo. Buffalo digging out. Officials here responding to criticism. They should have done more. 35 mile per hour wind gusts for three hours straight with less than a quarter mile visibility. This was an extreme blizzard, maybe the Category 5 of blizzards. Casey Macaron's mother, Monique Alexander, died in the storm on Christmas Eve. The Buffalo native, who had been through many snowstorms here, thought this one was the same. We were waiting for her to come home. Um, I knew something was wrong right away, though. A simple decision on any other day, life-threatening in this storm. My kids, they lost their grandmother, and that was her most important role in her life was being a good grandmother. And now they just have memories. In Erie County alone, at least 34 people killed so far in extreme weather in an area accustomed to major snowstorms. For every person who died, dozens of stories of those who stepped up and saved friends, neighbors, even strangers. This is something I always do. I help everybody. There's people out there dying. There's people freezing their death in their car. Craig Elston was open for business when the extreme conditions started up. Well, if you need shelter, come to 707 Fillmore. You can get warm, heat and electricity. He ended up hosting up to 40 people over two days at his CNC Cuts barbershop. We got to come together and a lot of times people are selfish. So at that moment, I was just thinking about clearly none of all this stuff. Right. I was just thinking about um, just keeping people warm. It was really that simple. Then there was Shakira Autry, who heard a man she didn't know screaming for help. His hands had big ice uh, balls on it. And with him having those ice balls on his hand, we brought him in my house. Joe White, who is developmentally disabled, lost in whiteout conditions. Autry didn't know him, but she saved him. We got to get some help. He has gangrene on his hands. I'm gonna, he's going to lose his fingers. A driving ban remains in effect for Buffalo as the city recovers from a storm that'll be one for the record books. The airport is now reopened as Buffalo comes to grips with a brutal year. The tragic stories, the losses of individuals in our community, and it is heartbreaking. It's a gut punch. 2022 has been a horrible year for our community in so many different ways. I can't wait till 2023 starts. 
There is so much frustration across uh, Buffalo over this storm. You know, even the county executives saying the streets here in Buffalo, the city of Buffalo, aren't being cleared fast enough. And maybe in the future, the county and the state need to take over that role. Look, this storm was so different and so big and so just intense for so long that it is going to be talked about for a very long time. Phil? Yeah, can't turn the page. It's still very real right now. Miguel Marquez in Buffalo. Thanks so much. How celebrities and social media is making it hard for diabetics to find a life-saving medication. In our health lead, as the market for new weight loss drugs soars, people with diabetes could be the ones paying the price. Joining me now is CNN's Elizabeth Cohen to explain what's going on here. And Elizabeth, we've recently heard of diabetes drugs being used for weight loss. Can you explain to people who apparently are extraordinarily selfish, how does this actually affect those who need the drug for their diabetes? Well, actually, Phil, this pill is, this drug, I should say, has been approved by the FDA for people with diabetes and another form of it for people who need, who need to lose weight. So both uses are legitimate. But here's the problem. This drug was just out there for diabetics in the beginning. And as people started to discover it as a weight loss drug, if you look on social media, you can find people who are getting it for weight loss when really they probably don't need it for medical weight loss. They need it because, you know, maybe they want to lose a little bit of weight. So the bottom line here is that we have had people with diabetes as well as the doctors who care for them saying, look, I need this for my patient with diabetes and I can't get it because it's been become so popular for weight loss. Again, it is FDA approved for weight loss. The concern is that it's being used by people who don't really need to lose weight for medical reasons. And I want to give you some numbers that show that. So a version of this drug, it's called Ozempic when it's prescribed for diabetics. A version of this drug is approved for people with weight loss, but there are rules. I mean, there are, there are guidelines. You are supposed to be using this if you are overweight and have medically related weight loss, you know, weight problems for the weights that you see there on the left-hand side. On the right-hand side, those are the guidelines for anyone at those weights should be using it. The issue is, is that people who are likely below these weights are getting this drug when really they don't need it for medical reasons and they should be leaving it alone for people who do need it for medical reasons. For those, for those people who do need it for medical reasons, how effective is this drug for weight loss as they kind of work through their health, potential health concerns? Right. So for these folks, they're seeing some pretty impressive weight loss. I mean, it's like 10 to 15 percent, and that's more than many other weight loss drugs. But again, this is supposed to be used by people who need to lose weight for medical reasons, because they're obese or because they're overweight and they have you know problems related to being overweight. So that's really important. Let's take a look at what the company has to say about these shortages. So the company that makes this drug says there are intermittent supply disruptions of some dosages of Ozempic due to the combination of incredible demand coupled with overall global supply constraints. So you see it right there, the maker of the drug saying, yes, there are problems. Phil? Yeah, social media influencer is not the threshold for qualification for the job, uh, drug. Elizabeth Cohen, thanks so much for your reporting. And coming up next in the Situation Room with Wolf Blitzer, the United States putting in place rules, new rules for travelers coming from China. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 
and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.